Life's complicated and overwhelming enough, especially for those in mission-driven work. Let's make your journey to health as simple and sustainable as possible. I'm Lisa Baker, and I want to welcome you to the Simply Health Coaching Podcast, where it's the food, and it's more than the food. On this podcast, we talk about the food that you put in your mouth, and everything else that nourishes you, or doesn't, with special attention paid to the problems and opportunities facing women over 40 burning out in mission-driven work. My vision is a world in which you can be well while doing good. My mission is to give you the simple resources and practices and some helpful connections to get there. Let's get started. This week's episode is brought to you by my all-new annual membership program. I provide a lot of virtual workshops throughout the year, and to make your life easier, I've bundled them into a single package and added a few bonuses. Your annual membership includes virtual access to all 20 workshops in 2022. That's 10 Flip Your Kitchen sessions and 10 midweek wellness workshops, plus the replays. So if you can't make them in person, the replays are available to you. The membership also includes a PDF copy of the Flip Your Kitchen cookbook and workbook combination pack. And you'll get some Simply Health Coaching swag. Receive your choice of a stainless steel tumbler with lid. You can find all the details in my store. The link is in the show notes. And I've extended the special pricing until January 31st. If you're still looking for meaningful, unusual gifts for yourself or others, give the gift of health this year. Christine O'Neill is a former clinician and hospital executive and a burnout survivor who now helps others as a burnout recovery strategist, dare to lead certified executive leadership coach and yoga teacher. She's passionate about helping overwhelmed professionals learn how to make a difference while having a life using values-based prioritization and neuroscience-informed self-management techniques. She specializes in professional burnout prevention and recovery and executive coaching for people-centered leaders. Christine worked in healthcare for 30 years, gaining deep experience in direct patient care, hospital leadership, nonprofit board leadership, and grassroots political advocacy. When not working, you'll find Christine exploring new places in her camper van, developing plant-based recipes, petting all the dogs, and connecting with friends and family. Welcome, Christine. I'm so glad we finally got this to happen. I know we've been working on it for quite a while. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. So I warned you, my first question for everybody is always the same. And we're going to talk about kale and kryptonite. So in my work as a health coach, I talk about not just the food you put in your mouth, but everything else in your life that can nourish you or not as kale and kryptonite. So tell us what's your kale? What's the one thing that you try to do daily because you know it is just that good for you? Mm. Well, for me, it's giving my brain space. And that can look like a lot of different things. It means getting a decent amount of sleep at night. And it means giving myself some protected downtime during the day where I'm not feeding my brain with information or stimulating things. Brilliant. Nobody has said that up until now. Yeah. <laughs> and you get my vote because I'm, I'm a big sleep girl. I'm like, yep, got to get enough sleep. <laughs> it's kind of a joke in my family that I go to bed before the kids did. <laughs> <laughs> and how about your kryptonite? What's the one thing that uh, you know is not great for you and sometimes it sneaks in? Well, it's the flip side of not giving my brain enough downtime and it's constantly filling it with 
information. So I'm constantly reading articles and books, listening to podcasts and audiobooks, and you know, looking at great posts on social media that teach me something new every day. Um, <clears throat> the danger is because I love learning. So I don't know if you're a Clifton Strengths person, but if you're a Strengths Finder person, my number one strength is input. There is just not enough information in, in the day that I can get in my brain. So if I overdo that, then I knock myself out. I, mm. I'm just not functioning well. So yeah, oh, yeah good it's, answer. It's yes. looking and listening to too much stuff. Yeah. Yep. So you call yourself a burnout recovery interventionist, and I would love to know how you came to do what you do and what it is exactly. Well, like most of us, I came to do what I do because I had a problem that I couldn't find a solution to. So I have a 30-year history in healthcare, 20 of which were as a practicing PA, a clinician. And I experienced burnout multiple times in my career. And I came up at a time when we didn't talk about burnout. It wasn't even uh, a, a, like today, it's you know a word at the tip of everyone's tongue, but back then, it really was perceived, especially in healthcare, as sort of a personal weakness, you know, that you weren't gritty or um, resilient enough and you just needed to work harder. To get just work harder. I, I yeah. immediately <laughs> am suspicious of anyone who uses the word just, <laughs> like just yeah, practice self-care. <laughs> right, right. So it's, it's a personal problem, right? So burnout was considered a personal problem and one of just inadequate ability to manage oneself. And so I was working, uh, at the time that I experienced my, my first bout of burnout, I was working in emergency medicine, which is a very stressful field. And you know, you work days, you work nights, you work evenings, you work weekends, you work holidays. You're dealing with people in acute pain, in acute stress. It's just a very high burnout field. And I was early in my career. I was in my um, early 30s. And it first hit me when I was driving to a night shift and I started to fantasize about driving into, um, I was going under an underpass and I was fantasizing about driving into the support for the underpass. And that might sound triggering because it sounds like I wanted to commit suicide or to end my life. But really what I wanted to do was end the really horrible feeling I had about going into yet another really challenging situation, which is an overnight shift, when I'm exhausted and when I am uh, chronically fatigued, chronically feeling like I'm not doing a good enough job, feeling irritable um, at people around me, having lost my sense of why I was doing what I was doing. I was depersonalizing my patients and I was just feeling really like I didn't wanna do it anymore, but to admit that so early in my medical career that I was really struggling and maybe this wasn't the right career path for me was not an option because I'm a perfectionist, <sighs> I'm type A, I'm a first-generation college grad. There was a lot riding on my success, my personal um, definition of success, which was an external externalized, I internalized the external definition of success that I should be able to handle it. And as a woman, you know, I had to work twice as hard and twice as long to get respect and be valued really for what I did. And so what I, what I didn't understand was that I was feeling burnt out and that this desire to prevent myself from getting to a shift by getting into a car accident 
was a way that I could get out of it without being blamed for being weak. Because mm. if it was an accident preventing me from getting to work, then I could still be perceived as a, as a good person, as strong person, and successful person. So I didn't understand any of this at the time. And I kept working in that position a little bit longer until I finally realized I needed to make a change and couldn't work nights anymore. Um, so I did what most burned out people do, and I changed jobs. And changing jobs is sort of the, often the only option that folks who are feeling really burned out feel that they have available to them. So because we're, it's so clear that the work is the problem, um, changing jobs, getting more salary, different hours, a different environment seems like the right thing to do. And in many ways it is because we're removing ourselves from the very difficult situation and set of circumstances that we were in that were driving our burnout. And we'll get to that in a minute, um, burnout does have some internal drivers, but primarily there are external drivers that cause the burnout state. And so I changed jobs. I got a day job. It was still in the highly acute subspecialty of medicine. And guess what happened? I burned out again. I burned Surprise. out a total. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, so I kept burning out. And then I started to really identify that everyone around me was sort of using the same language I was. So all the other clinicians were talking about it. And I was even hearing it from some administrators that, but really more from the clinicians because they were who I was interacting with throughout the day. And they were all sort of saying the same thing, that they don't feel valued, that they don't feel like they have any control over their time. You know, trying to get a dentist appointment. It's like, pun intended, pulling hen's teeth. It's just impossible <laughs> to get anything done during the day. You're mixing your metaphors there. I and know, I love it. I know. I, I love I it. Like, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, and then it was so much harder for, for women primarily um, because they were responsible for child rearing. Those, those women who were parents, I'm not a parent, but those, uh, those people around me who were parents, they, you know, they, they had an extra shift, right? Every day, like not only were they responsible for their work product, but they also then were primarily responsible for ensuring that the kids had what they needed. And they carried a really big emotional mental load. Yeah. Um, and there are some, some fathers obviously and other types of parents who carry this as well, but it is primarily an issue, for, more of an issue for women. So I, I was seeing this all around me and the toxicity and cynicism that people were carrying with them, they just, they had lost their sense of professional satisfaction. And that was exactly how I felt. You know, I went into medicine and those of us who go into helping or caring professions share this, you know, we go into these fields because we want to help make a difference. We want to improve people's lives. My personal mission is to help reduce suffering in the world, human and animal and planetary, right? So this was a way for me to do that. I'd always, for as long as I could remember, had always wanted to work in medicine. So I, I changed jobs again. Um, and I noticed that even in this new environment, um, the people surrounding me were all saying the same thing. So I started to look at the systemic issues um, that were really, I, I thought, causing a lot of this dissatisfaction. And around this time, so this was the um, mid 2000s, we started to hear about burnout a little bit. Um, and the, the first solution offered to clinicians, primarily from non-clinical administrators, was that we needed to learn how to relax and manage stress better. Well, that's all fine and dandy, and there is a place for that. But at the time, I was a 30-year yoga practitioner and a yoga instructor and meditation instructor. So if 
learning how to relax better was the solution I never would have burned out in the first time. So at the first, at the first, in the first time, oh my God, I'm losing my place. language. Sorry, <laughs> in, in the first, first place. place, thank you. Um, so obviously that was not enough. And I knew that this, the suggestions were, it, they were insulting to most of us. And so, um, you know, fast forward a year or two later and the buzzword was becoming more resilient, you know, developing grit. Um, the problem is in healthcare, we are literally trained to tolerate the intolerable. If you look at the length and rigor of medical training, um, certainly for physicians, but also for other clinicians like, like me, um, grit, perseverance, and resilience are not in short order. Mm. They literally are what have driven us to the point of success that we were at. So that also didn't land well. Mm. So then I started to put, you know, connect some dots. And I was like, you know what, it really seems like the system is the problem. And it is that people are feeling commodified and that they don't have any sense of agency. And so I thought I am going to help be part of the solution. I was on some committees to um, improve well-being and that didn't really go anywhere. So I thought I'm going to go into leadership. The problem is that I'm not sitting at the right tables. I don't have the ability to influence the decision makers and I don't have an ability to make decisions myself. So I ended up um, pursuing some leadership training and I got promoted into an executive leadership position in my hospital where guess what happened? <laughs> you burned out. <laughs> I did, I did because the problem was too big. I didn't have the ability to really make a difference on a systemic level, but where I was able to make a difference was on an individual level, a one-on-one -on -one level. When I sat down across from uh, another clinician who was really struggling and we were actually able to start to dissect out what wasn't working in their life and what they could try instead. I really saw that I was able to move the needle for people. And I thought, you know what, this is really what I wanna do. Um, but that was right around when I was burning out and I burned out so badly the final time that I got sick. Mm. I developed colitis. I developed a crippling anxiety that I had never had in my life, panic attacks. And finally it tipped over into a very severe depression. And I had never been depressed before. And I was 48 years old and I didn't understand what was happening to me. And uh, I also had some other circumstances in life, some family members who were dealing with sudden illness. And there was just, you know, sort of a conspiracy of circumstances that I couldn't handle anymore. I broke. I finally broke. I call it my breakdown. And um, I took a medical leave of absence. I realized that I was completely ineffective at work, that my body was breaking down. And this bout of burnout was so bad that there was no way that just changing a job was going to be enough. So I took a leave of absence. I got back in touch with my therapist. I got on an antidepressant. And I started to just give myself a break from the driving stress of feeling like I had to keep all the balls in the air at work and help everyone mm. um, around me and help reduce their suffering. And um, it was during that time, I, on, at the end of that leave of absence, I actually hired a coach because I felt that I needed some help figuring out what I was going to do next. Here I was, mid middle age, um, mid-career, by all standard US measures, an incredible success six-figure salary, owned my own home, owned my car outright, took trips, had everything I wanted. And 
was not thriving. I wasn't even surviving at the end. Um, and so this coach just really helped me in a way that I had not been able to shift before, even with lots and lots of therapy. And um, I realized that what I had been doing one-on-one -on -one with uh, other clinicians in my, my leadership role was coaching and that I had been in fact coaching patients for years um, around, you know, their health conditions and help and their mindset around, um, you know, following uh, recommendations to improve their health. So I thought, huh, I had been thinking maybe I would shift my career and become a therapist because I'm really interested in people's minds and what makes them tick and helping them move beyond self perceived limitations. And then I realized that coaching was a way I could do that as well. And I entered into a coach training program and I did a year long coach training program and um, realized that what I really wanted to do was help individuals primarily in healthcare, primarily women um, who are experiencing burnout, get beyond burnout. And that's what I do now. So beautiful. I call <laughs> The burnout intervention, burnout recovery intervention piece is because um, a lot of the uh, advice being proffered right now by popular media is around burnout prevention. And the awful truth is that the, the cat's out of the bag for most people. And most people are experiencing some degree of chronic stress or emotional exhaustion or you know, end stage emotional exhaustion, which is burnout. And so really the, the interventions that we use to help prevent burnout are different from what we need to do to recover from burnout. And so that's where I focus. Um, and I work primarily one-on-one -on -one with clients, although I'm also developing a group coaching program for women that I hope to launch in early 2022. I offer workshops and I do speaking around burnout and better work-life integration. Mm. And I also do some executive coaching with C-suite leaders because that's really where the change starts happening is at the top. And so I work with a select group of uh, presidents and other C-suite executives who are people-centered and see that their people and understand that their people are their greatest resource and are looking for some support around that. Mm, yeah, yeah, oh, so needed, so needed. And what really jumps out at me is how you were saying that, you know, you were seeing it all around you. And so I, I, one, one sort of distinction that I like to make in my coaching is, explaining that there's a difference between common and normal. And yes. it's just <laughs> when burnout is so common, then it's sort of like the system just kind of normalizes that. Like, well, yeah. what are you talking about? Everybody's feeling that. So it's on you. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Um, and I think it's really important for people to hear that and understand that, that just because it's become ubiquitous doesn't yeah. mean it's acceptable. Yes, exactly. Normal and acceptable are two words that don't, aren't the same thing as common. No. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm, I know that we talked about this when, when you and I were first meeting, but um, in, you know, in 2019, the World Health Organization said, you know, oh, guess what, people, burnout really is a thing. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's right. Yeah, burnout's a thing. And here are the symptoms. And, you know, basically all the things that you were saying about just frustration and feeling ineffective and not being fulfilled by your work and being exhausted and being cynical, <laughs> like, yeah. check, 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 check. Yeah. And I'm always shocked 
at how many of those boxes people check. And, and yet they think, well, this is normal. I'm, I'm a middle-aged woman. I'm mid-career. I have family that still needs me. Oh, and look, here come the parents that need me. Mm-hmm. And they just think it's quote unquote normal. And I'm like, mm, no, it's common to feel this way. And it's totally not normal. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And just to piggyback on your comment about the WHO. Yeah. So two years ago only, right? Yes. We got a diagnosis and it's not technically, they, they don't call it a diagnosis. It's, yeah. it's an occupational phenomenon. Yes. Is what the World Health Organization refers to it as. And that's another thing. Let's talk about that. Like, let's talk about that. Occupational <laughs> phenomenon? Really? So, yeah. like, I come to work and I'm a completely different person than I am at home, right? Like, it's no. two different women. <laughs> right, right. So, so how can so- they try to make that distinction? Like, this is a workplace phenomenon. I'm like, no, no, no. It's a whole life phenomenon. <laughs> Oh, thank you for saying that. That's what I preach from the rooftops as well. And this is just really true for anyone who offers their labor, whether paid or unpaid. So wherever we are giving of ourselves emotionally, where things are taking from our energy and our, um, our emotional well, if you will, um, it, it, it could be a driver toward burnout. So we think about parenting you know, any kind of caregiving, right? So you're, you're caring for a child or uh, a family member who needs help or a friend or someone in your community. Volunteering. We hear about people burning out from volunteering. There was actually a study done on climate activists on how some of them reached severe burnout because of the sense of uh, futility around the work that they do. I think about board service. So I served on a board for four years, um, <laughs> two of them as president. And let me tell you, that caused a level of burnout. It's It was unpaid, but it burnt the heck out of me. Yeah. So really, if we think about any, any type of caregiving, even caring for um, uh, an ailing pet or an aging pet, you know? So if we think about it more as... Um, an equation where we are giving more than we are receiving, then anything that that results in that equation can result in a burnout state. So thank you, WHO, for starting the conversation. <laughs> starting we need the to conversation. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Let's and let's talk about the fact that that came out in uh, let's see May of 2019, I believe that that the ICD-11 yeah. was going to include that. And, you know, around about November 2019, we started hearing about some weird little virus that was happening over in China. So let's go there. Let's Let's talk about what the pandemic has done. So what what do you think were the major stressors pre-pandemic? And what did the pandemic add to that equation? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's not like burnout started with the pandemic, right? Burnout was already an epidemic and a crisis before the pandemic hit. And, you know, if you go back and look at articles in Forbes or Inc or the Harvard Business Review, they were already and had been for a couple of years talking about how this was a real problem. They were talking about it mostly from um, an employee engagement perspective, which obviously is important because we want our employees to be well. But if you think about it from a business mindset, it's important because you know, centered, well employees perform well. And so (laughs) that impacts the bottom line. And so we were hearing a lot about it probably for for that 
reason. And that might sound a little cynical on my part, but um, I've been doing a lot of research and analysis on this over the last few years. And, you know, I just think we live in the United States. It's a capitalist system. And so, um, well, that's why I only work with leaders who are people focused and not bottom line focused because, yes. you know, there's a, there's a di they're, they're related, but there's a difference. And so, you know, we, we were moving too quickly. We were in this digital age where, um, you know, my gosh, like when I was in my early, I mean, I didn't have a computer in college. I'm that age, I'm 51 and I'm a Gen Xer. I'm not a digital native, but all of us suddenly had supercomputers in our hands and had been for several years. And the information age and the digital age were just pushing life at a pace that is unsustainable for the human organism. And so that was happening before. Um, before the pandemic hit. And again, you know, women with the second and third shift of childcare and house care and other care and volunteering and church and everything on top of their paid work um, was already an issue and having inadequate help at home. Pandemic comes along and throws kerosene on this smoldering fire. And what it really did was two things is it certainly worsened things because now we're dealing with this existential threat and this dread and this fear of, am I gonna get sick? Are people I love gonna get sick? Are they going to die? Are you know the elderly or at-risk people in my life going to be in the ICU and I'm gonna be unable to visit them? You know That was early pandemic before we had a vaccine. Um, there was just so much unknown and we were, most of us were in lockdown and we had never experienced that in our lives before. And so two things that are really, really important to the human brain in terms of being well and stable are a sense of certainty and our ability to predict the future. So control, right? We suddenly felt like everything was outside of our control. Yeah. Now you and I both know that most of us have a lot less control than we think we do. Yeah. So exactly. this is so this Surprise. is the second thing. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the second thing that the pandemic did was it basically um, took the lid off of uh, these problems that were already there, which is um, well, I guess it's not really a problem, but that really we have a lot less control than we think we do. Suddenly, people who were in recession-proof fields like medicine were getting laid off, terminated, you know, their positions were being, I mean, there was just, there was all this financial unknown. It, it, it was um, a state of, it, an anxiety producing state that most people hadn't, I, I will say, I won't say most, I mean, we all have experienced stressors in our lives and traumas in our lives, but this was a collective experience like we had never experienced globally. And so what it did was highlight the problems that were already there by worsening them. So, you know, yeah, we already were moving too fast and people weren't getting enough rest and they weren't getting enough um, important social time with meaningful, you know, the meaningful people in their lives. And, um, and work was driving people and taking from people and not giving as much, you know, after, after World War II when, uh, just a little bit of history, <laughs> um, <laughs> when the, the company, you know, became the, the caretaker of the worker, right? So that's when we started to have employee benefits and we had pensions. So, you know, we gave them our best years 
And then we retired and they took care of us. We did that in exchange for money and in exchange for healthcare and maybe disability and some paid vacation. Over the years, those benefits have eroded to the point that we're at now where um, unfortunately, a lot of folks who are working full-time don't even have access to health benefits. They may not, you know, we don't have paid leave in this country. We don't have paid um, maternal leave or paternal leave as a policy in this country. And so I think that the pandemic has been an opportunity for people to kind of look at things a little bit differently. You know, we hear a lot about, there's a group of folks who, for whom the pandemic slowed life down and they actually then could see how, how fast they've been going and how unhealthy that was. And they've made some really important changes in their lives. A whole bunch of employees are now gonna be remote workers and they're not gonna go back to the workplace. Like things have fundamentally shifted um, in manners that have been positive for a group of people. And things have shifted in a manner that is not good for a whole lot of people as well as a result of the pandemic. And people are really um, rethinking that. I think it's really, again, uh, shown a light on a lot yeah. of the structural inequities in this country. Yeah. Um, and. And so, you know, there's the good and the bad. And the truth is that, you know, the pandemic didn't go away in two weeks. You know, we're, we're going to be here for a while now. And, and life has fundamentally changed. And, and with these kinds of big shakeups come, comes opportunity, right, for us to kind of really um, explore where we do have the opportunity to make some changes to yeah. improve our lives. And, maybe reject things from pre-pandemic life that um, no longer serve us. And yeah. Oh, I love that. I, I don't know whether you've read anything by Sonia Renee Taylor. Um, she, yes. wrote a, she wrote, uh, The Body is Not an Apology. It's not an apology. Mm -hmm. And she talks about, I, I think she calls it the beauty industrial complex. Yes. Um, yeah. And I was just thinking about the pandemic as, like you said, it, it just pointed out all these areas where, okay, Let's be real. We knew we had a problem with education. Yeah. We knew yeah. there was a labor issue. We knew there was an issue with our, you know, carceral system. And we were just able to sort of ignore it, right? And the pandemic has just been like, yo, can't ignore yeah. this anymore. Yes. And really, um, her quote that came out really in the early days of the pandemic, she said something about like, yeah, let's not go back to normal because normal was not good for a lot of people. <laughs> no, she she's so right about that. And um, yeah, let, let's not. I mean, and we're speaking as two white women of privilege, right? Exactly. Um, yes. So it's it's one thing that happened over the last couple of years, almost two years, is that um, you know, let's not forget there was the whole Black Lives Matter movement and civil unrest and, you know, yeah. becoming aware of, of our contributions to white supremacy. And I think a lot of voices like Sonia's and, and many, many, many others um, are being shared more widely um, among the people who need to hear them because we had the privilege of being able to not pay too much attention to those inequities before. Right. Yeah, even um, if we admitted really that they existed, That's we right. weren't really forced to confront them and do something about them. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If you if you like her writing, um, another great book I read was um, Hood Feminism. Oh, I haven't heard of that. Um, oh, that's a wonderful book. It really talks about um, ex exactly what you were just bringing up. Like, here we are, two white middle-aged women of, of substantial privilege 
Um, and you know, what does the women's movement look like if you're not a white woman of privilege? Well, it looks really, really different. <laughs> and yeah. that, that is, it's a really great book, uh, for anyone who, who claims to be a feminist. It's like, okay, you really need to, you really need to read this book before you go around saying that. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I do need to read that book. Um, I, I was a women's studies major. I graduated mm -hmm. from college in 1992 before there were gender or women's studies departments. I designed oh, yeah. my own major. And um, and I was a white, you know, second slash third wave feminist who didn't understand how exclusive and non-intersectional I was. And yeah. so, yeah, you're right. Yeah. There's there's a lot of, of learning and listening yeah. and learning um, that we white feminists need to practice. Yeah, yep. Well, back to burnout though. <laughs> yeah, it's all related though, it's all related. Exactly, yeah. So <laughs> what I would love you to do is I would really like you as a burnout recovery interventionist to pick an audience. And it can be, you know, these women that we talk about who are burning out, it can be their partners and spouses, it can be their bosses, it could be their organizations, it could be their government, it could be their policymakers, whatever you want. Pick one and say, you know, if I ran the world, here's what you would do to make burnout recovery possible. Oh, that's such a hard question. I because I have so many different answers. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> because it has to happen at the systemic level. But the pragmatist in me knows that um, what's really possible within one's lifetime is to make the changes themselves. So my audience would be, um, Women like like you and I, quite honestly, because those are the women I know. So um, midlife, mid career, women who have who are um, high achieving, perfectionist, perfectionistic, and who again sort of reached that level, like really hustled and and worked their asses off to reach that level of success that they thought was going to help them feel safe and independent and like they mattered in the world and are finding themselves feeling broken and beaten down. So those really are the women who I want to say, you have the ability to actually redefine what success means for you and to create that for yourself. Mm, I love that so much. <laughs> Beautiful. All right, great. Well. So tell us what you offer. You mentioned briefly that you do one-on-one -on -one coaching. You're planning a group program. Tell us what you offer, how people can get in touch with you, because I suspect that your words are really going to, as we say in the coaching world, resonate with a lot of women, <laughs> <laughs> or as we oversay in the coaching world these days. Right. That's right. That's right. Well, um, I do offer one-on-one -on -one coaching services. So I offer corporate executive coaching um, to um, any kind of senior leader meaning um, any race or gender who uh, really is looking for support um, around making big structural changes in their organization or even just speaking up courageously. So I'm a Brene Brown uh, certification graduate mm. um, as a professional. But I said that really awkwardly. I'm a certified dare to lead professional. Right. And Love so that, I, yes. bring, <laughs> I, bring, I bring that sort of like, let's take the armor off. Let's be really authentic in our leadership. Let's speak clearly. Let's tell the truth. And let's make the changes that need to happen. So I work with senior leaders who, who resonate with that yes, idea, whether they're already practicing, who are ready to do it. Mm. Um, and then I also work with individuals and groups of folks who are looking for help just getting unstuck 
getting moving from that sense of just chronic overwhelm and chaos where you're so beaten down that you don't even know where to start and you don't have the energy. And I, I help bring those people back to a place where they um, know where, what they want, where they're going and how to get there. And yeah. I do that with a combination of sort of traditional coaching. Um, and I'm also a certified yoga and meditation teacher. So we bring some somatic work into that, some body-based healing to, to help get the chronic stress and trauma out of our bodies so that we can actually see what's possible. So it's oh. a bit of an integrative approach yeah. to burnout recovery. Yeah, that's lovely. And tell us what the best way is to find you, connect with you, learn more. Um, probably my website. So christineoneal.co. Okay. And um, I'm also on LinkedIn and on Instagram. Great. And I'll make sure to link those all up in the show notes. And thank you so much for finally making this happen. I know we tried for a while to get to get our calendars to mesh and I, it was worth the wait. Every, every week of wait was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for me too. I've such enjoyed this conversation. Great. Thank you, Christine. Thanks for listening. Please note that any suggestions provided on this show are not meant to replace medical advice, and the opinions of the guests on this show are their own. Simply Health Coaching and Elizabeth A. Baker, LLC, neither endorse nor take responsibility for statements made by guests. Let me know your thoughts about the episode and share your biggest takeaways and aha moments. And let me know who else you want to hear from on the topic of being well while doing good. You can send me a voice message directly through Anchor, as well as some of the other listening platforms. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast in your listening app so you never miss an episode. Love the podcast? You can support it with a donation directly from the podcast homepage in most listening apps. If you'd like to know more about my work, visit my website at simplyhealthcoaching.com. As always, the link is in the show notes.